I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. Coming up, it's our Reimagining Africa series. We celebrate Africa Day, the founding of the Organization of African Unity, now known as the African Union, in May 1963. Here on The Spin, we're hearing from African women leading, thriving, and reimagining sectors right here in Ghana, across Africa, and in the diaspora. On this week's show, we're talking technology. Silicon Valley, that's what comes to mind when we think tech. Nerdy white men out in the valley, out in the desert, furiously working to build the next big tech discovery. Well, we're looking at the world of tech right here in Ghana, across the continent and in the diaspora. And we're hearing how it is being refashioned, reimagined and re-envisioned by dynamic, innovative women who are looking at the practical issue of problem solving, going grassroots with their approach, bringing investors to the table so they can put their money where the real movers and shakers are. So we're joined by two women, both Ghanaian, who are reimagining this sector of technology in Africa and the diaspora, Ethel Kofi and Akosia Anobil. We'll hear how Akosia is building an ecosystem that stretches between the UK and Ghana, actually across Africa, with her Tech in Ghana conference and her company AB2020. And we'll get the scoop on how Ethel Coffey is leading women in the world of tech with her visionary Women in Tech Africa project. All of that coming up on The Spins Reimagining Africa. start with Ethel Kofi. Ethel has been named one of the top five women impacting IT in Africa. She is CEO and founder of Edel Technology Consulting, an IT consulting and digital products company in West Africa and Europe, who was recently named IT consulting firm of the year by the telecoms and IT industry. Ethel is also founder of Women in Tech Africa. That is Africa's largest women in tech group with members in over 30 Africa countries and in the diaspora and indeed growing. So welcome to Reimagining Africa, Ethel Kofi. Thank you for inviting me. So award winner, innovator, leader. So let's actually start with Women in Tech Africa and talk about the importance of women in tech across Africa and how that specifically contributes to the way you're reimagining technology as a sector. There's a whole conversation about the fourth industrial revolution, the future of work, And then there's a whole conversation about the fact that Africa has what we call the youth bulge, which means we're the youngest continent on the universe. By 2050, at least 25% of the world's workforce is going to be people of African descent. This conversation is being had in different corridors of power around how does Africa take its stand as it begins to provide, I suppose, the human capital for the world. And this is where technology, I think, it's a big play, right? So Instead of having the conversation, which I keep having and keep sitting in meetings where we talk about the Africa youth bulge as a catastrophe. I've heard the word tsunami used instead of the word potential, the word opportunity. And I think bringing technology into the mix means that in the next 25 to 30 years, we have a whole population of people that are going to be able to go into the fourth industrial revolution, basically on the arms of technologies. And for me, it's important that young women 
don't get left behind in the conversation. And then there's a whole conversation about algorithms and who built algorithms, right? So we've all heard the fact that at, at some point in time, LinkedIn would show women the lower paid jobs as opposed to men. Why? Because the data shows what men have higher paid jobs, right? My thing is, we need to have women in there building the algorithms, thinking through the algorithms, sitting in the meetings where the algorithms that are going to shape artificial intelligence, driverless cars, robotics, all those conversations have to have women in the room. Otherwise, we risk bringing all the biases that we're trying to fix now right into technology systems. This is why this is a big thing for me. And so out of that, you also have the Women in Tech Week. Yes. This is the global event. You started it back in 2016. And the first one brought over 10,000 women virtually. And then there were the physical events here in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Botswana, Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, Canada, Germany, Belgium, and China. So talk about the significance of that kind of gathering. You talk about not leaving young women out of the conversation, not leaving women out of the conversation, but you're doing more than including them. You're putting them in the forefront. Talk about the positionality of that and why that matters to you. I think it's a show of force, to show mm. power, to bring all of us into the space to say we're here. Because I've spent my time in a lot of conversations where we're asked, but are, are there enough women building technology in Africa? Are there enough women entrepreneurs in Africa? We get asked these questions. And part of the creating Women in Tech Week was, for me, a show of force, a show of numbers, a show that we're here and we're doing. I think also it enables the women themselves to look around and go, I'm not alone. We're, we're many. <laughs> we're many and we're out here and we're fighting. I created it because it was important to show the world what we were capable of. It was important that we could be the center of the discussion. We could drive the discussion versus being on the fringes of the discussion. And it was also part of creating our own table as opposed to begging to be invited to the table all the time. Since 2016, each year it grows. Last year, which was the 2018 event, was what, 50 events, 14 countries. Wow. That's a show of force. Show of force. So given all this innovation, 10,000 strong, this huge show of force, it's building, it's growing, 50 events, 14 countries. So given all of this, why is there this obsession with replicating Silicon Valley in Africa? And talk about what is wrong with that specifically. Here's the thing. Silicon Valley is great, right? I'm, I'm not going to knock it. It's great. It happened because a set of circumstances were just right. Stanford University, the, the U.S. government putting money into the, the development of certain sectors and then the venture capital industry. Those three things enabled Silicon Valley to become the money, the skills and the technology basically brought an innovation space together. Now, here's why I keep saying Africa technology ecosystems need to stop looking at Silicon Valley and imitating it wholly. We have our own special set of circumstances. I'll take a step back to just even the proliferation of mobile phones in Africa. Three things happened, right? Number one, telcos figured out prepaid. Number two, African governments realized how much more money they could make if they sold spectrums, right? The telecom spectrums on which you can make calls. And then Nokia cheap phones. For Before that, Africa was never on the radar 
for mobile. The conversation was they, they barely have landlines. How are they going to use mobile? They can't afford it, right? And we backed that trend. Now, technology in Africa has grown in really specific ways where one of the very first things tech in Africa has been used for is to fix the infrastructure problems, right? And so when... In Silicon Valley, I don't know, people are building bodegas that are on, you know, reimagining bodegas. The reason why fintech of the financial technology ecosystem is happening in Africa is because of failure of the banking system and failure of the banking system to attract people that are below sort of the, the poverty line into their systems. So what happened? People built systems that opened up to people that are bottom of the pyramid. A lot of our tech is built around fixing our infrastructure issues. And that's a distinct advantage. We have learned how to innovate cheaply. There's a term, I think a Harvard professor came up with a couple of years ago, it's called Jugad innovation, necessity innovation. But we are exceptionally good at that. That's where we have growth, right? That's where we've learned, this we've done it for over years and that's where we stand. Now, my take is, if you're going to build a technology ecosystem, you've got to look at all the good things, like having the skill sets, the capital, all those things that, yes, you can pick and learn from anywhere else in the world. But we also have really specific skills, niche skills that are great for us. Fintech, agritech, web, young people over the last, since 2012, have been building technologies that are directly target towards smallholder farmers. Nowhere in the world are they doing this so well, right? We have those distinctive advantages. And when we wholly try and swallow Silicon Valley, we do this thing where we go into a fight with no distinct advantage. The thing is to be able to attract the most money, right? The thing is to be able to be innovative, build and attract the most money into our ecosystems. If you go in without a distinct advantage and you are a copy of somebody else, you don't win. My point is if we're going to go into this fight and compete against Israel, Israel is the perfect example of a country that's barely 5 million people. That is the security tech ecosystem of the world. It's the startup capital of the world. How do you do that? You recognize that you have distinct advantages. They've had issues with their neighbors. So what have they done? They've learned of technology security has been a thing that they've done so well. So that's what they leverage on. If you see all the big tech companies that have been sold out of Israel, they're sold in the billions. Like generally, if you look at the list, it's with a B, right? And it's generally in the tech security aspect. Why? Because that's where they have a distinct advantage. So when they're going to uh, fight head on head with other ecosystems, they know where they stand. They know what they're good at. And Africa needs to learn to be able to do that. So part of what you're talking about is completely reimagining the narrative on technology in Africa. And I think in some ways, nations across Africa are suffering from the NGO industrial complex narrative of we need the help, so therefore we can't bring the leadership in technology because we're waiting to be given something as opposed to stepping up, standing strong and delivering it ourselves. And despite everything you say contradicts that narrative and yet it remains the thing that lingers in the minds of people, which is where ideas around technology are not in step with the narrative that exists around technology in Africa. But here you said as a young African woman doing these amazing things globally, living here in Ghana, a Ghanaian, but moving globally, literally reimagining technology across Africa and globally about Africa. So then I wonder, though, what don't African governments appreciate about tech? 
and that if they did, might transform the industry? The first question is, do they even understand what it takes to support an innovative technology ecosystem? And I'm not going to attack or blame. My take is this. We need to force our way to the table. And in Ghana and and, and in some countries, we've done a really good job of sitting at the table, turning up and saying we deserve to be at the table. We need to have this discussion. African governments, governments do what governments will do, right? The thing they understand, the ways in which they understand to solve the problems in their communities and, and to win elections, they'll do, right? We need to come up we need to sit at the table. And um, part of it is they need to be willing to listen to us and say these are the ways in which we can help solve the big problems that you're trying to fix. Here's here's our take. Now, I've sat in conversations where, again, I'll mention that there's an agri-tech startup in Ghana that's doing amazing work since 2012, working with farmers on the ground. And then sitting in a meeting with them and a minister in Ghana who had no idea that these people were on the ground, had been working with farmers, had fixed the last mile problem with farmers, right? There's a young lady in Kenya who's built out alternative algorithm that helps alternative lending for farmers because banks don't want to lend to farmers because it takes so much to even get to a farmer and they don't have enough information to be able to verify whether the farmer is able to pay back. And she's done all this work in collecting the data. What's her name? Paris Besoa, she's she's out of Kenya. And she's built this thing out. And now she's saying, I've got this data. Banks, you just plug into me and you can then lend to farmers. The banks would not listen to her in the beginning. So she she had to take on the money and begin to lend herself. And she's, I think, lent to over a million farmers in Kenya right now. This is a girl that was born in a farming community and understood that her school fees didn't get paid if, you know, her grandmother couldn't get money to buy seeds. And she was really intelligent. So once she got to school and she figured out how she could solve the problem, she solved the problem, right? So there's the whole divide on people that are actually doing things on the ground and then there are people in government who are trying to fix these exact same problems but don't understand the solutions are them. Part of that is the dialogue. And so I'm all about putting people in a room. Now, governments understand, yes, technology, to, it's good to have technology. We want to be digital. I get this. We get this a lot. <laughs> we get invited to these. We want to be digital. Tell us how to be digital. As if that's the only place where yes. the solution lies. And then they, the first thing they think is, oh, hubs. We're going to build hubs. We're going to do challenges and hubs are the prize. answer to the world's problems hubs are the answer. <laughs> and we're just like no um there's a lot more to it there's a wider right. conversation about building capital and talent there's a wider conversation about ensuring that somebody who starts out is able to access the financing is able to access just the tools that will enable them to build and skill faster and then there is the enabling environment around taxation and just doing business in general that need to be put in place. And yes, hubs are cool, <laughs> but that's not the, you know, we built, I don't know, 20 hubs. And so, yay, we're a digital country. That's just, that's not it. Right. And it's it's part of it is around being led by women like you who are doing the work and understanding how reimagining technology can shape and engage in areas like employment, problem solving, really tackling areas of poverty in ways that we have had these kind of big 
narratives around how we do that. And you're bringing us this world of technology where those that will be in it are doing it. They then need to be equipped. The example of that young woman in, in Kenya is an extraordinary one, but actually that's how problems are solved. The people who live in the community think, but if we did A and then we did B, we would actually get to C. And then also something that I think is crucially important in somewhere like Ghana, where we should have cocoa millionaires. We should have farmers who are incredibly wealthy because yes. our wealth is in the land. Yes. And what I love about what you're saying is that you're showing how technology can begin to make that the potential of a reality by actually investing right there on the ground where we are. But there's a constant concern about access to finance for, for the tech industry and how not having that is hampering it. It's like a break. And this young lady is a perfect example. You create something that resolves the issue and the banks don't want to listen. And I know I've been to a million events around entrepreneurs, probably not a million. It feels like a million. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Where people have talked about there's a constant investment in startups only, but there never seems to be a move. You're talking about SME, small and medium-sized entrepreneurs. There never seems to be the move from small to medium. And that access to finance for women in technology seems to be a massive deal. What is the issue and how do you see it being changed? Well, there's a financing gap. Banks don't understand tech in the first place. And then there's the, the down the lane of tech and women. Just not fundamentally understanding technology and how technology businesses run means that you cannot plan products that make sense for technology and make sense for women that are building technology. Now, there seems to be a coordinated attempt worldwide to fix the financing gaps. And I'm actually interested in seeing the particular. So there's a lot of money, the couple of things happening, WeFi, which is a, a World Bank, I think, initiated project. There is 2X Challenge, which is comes out of OPIC in the US, and a couple of other things. And then you've got like FinDev, which is a development finance partner in Canada that's very much with Agenda Lens, who are all putting billions of dollars aside to be able to solve the financing gap. I'm actually quite interested in seeing the projects that happen. So part of what they've done traditionally now is, so World Bank brings a whole bunch of money to banks and asks banks to like pitch for the money and they say, no, but you must give it to these women. And that's what this money is for. And so the banks will then go with sort of where they know, right? Which is typically sort of women-led companies are more in the sort of retail space versus sort of manufacturing and tech and that sort of thing. And so they build these products and they give them to just certain segments. So at the end of the day, I don't know that it's necessarily solving a problem. There is definitely more money being put out there. I suspect if you have a conversation with 100 women building technology companies across Africa, you might have... 10 that understand, one, where to go to access the finance and what to do to access the finance, right? And then the other thing, which I, I, I read this quote, I think from Melinda, I think she wrote an article just from a few days ago where she said, the venture capital industry is white men giving money to white men. And I thought it was hilarious because it, <laughs> it really does capture what that is, which is white men being comfortable with other white men and giving them money to run companies, to run and scale companies. Actually, segues really great into what we're trying to do now, which is part of why I've 
been doing a lot of travel and speaking to venture capital firms and development finance partners. We're working and coordinating with other partners to be able to create a fund specifically for women tech entrepreneurs that are run by African women. And part of that conversation, and as we've gone into the conversations to to try and raise the money, is beginning to explain to those who don't understand what's happening there, but who have the access capital, what it means to put money into a woman building a tech company here on the ground in Ghana, in Kenya, in, in Malawi, what that means and the returns that you're going to be looking at. And that's not an easy conversation to have. Our very first conversation was when we, when we had the conversation, they said, but are there even women with scalable companies? And I was like, you've got to hold on. You're having the conversation far too into the future. We've got to start with, are people, do people, women have ideas that we can fund? Right. So a lot of partners that we talk to will initially say, no, but we, we fund scalables. We're not even funding startups. Like, well, you have to. If you need a pipeline in 10 years so you can show that you've done work, you can't sit and wait for five or 10 women out of sheer will to make it through and become mega tech companies. You've got to actually fund from the beginning, right? All these players will tell you. And part of that is convincing them we've we've got to start funding ideas, just like they are funding ideas out of Stanford, right? So... uh, 22-year-old, I keep saying this, and, you know, I'm not upset, I swear, but it's 22-year-old being given a million dollars to go play with an idea. That's fine. We should be able to replicate that for a young African 22-year-old with a great idea, right? If we have to create a team around her, yes, we create a team around her. That's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has Sheryl Sandberg, right? Bring an adult in the room. That's absolutely fine. But fund her idea, and take her to a place where that idea comes from. This just a simple concept. After all, Mark Zuckerberg just wanted to build a thing for you know Stanford campus or Harvard campus, wherever it was, right? And then they gave him both lots of money and they gave him adults <laughs> to help support the dream. And he's now gone from oh, I just wanted to have this thing that people in universities and colleges had to this thing that's global and worldwide. And we've got to do the same thing for African women building tech companies. We can't say, well, we're waiting. We're waiting for them to scale and then we'll fund them. That's never going to happen. We've got to put in the money now, which is now, I suppose, most of my day job at the moment. Right. It's but the it's, cons- also, it's also the fact that it's, that's never how you funded anybody else. Mm-hmm. You have not waited anybody. You've not waited for white men to scale. You've gone in and funded them right at the beginning of yes. something that shows a certain amount of promise. And no idea has been formed in solitude. Mm-hmm. It's formed in solidarity. And there are multiple people now, to wrap around that. Not in solitude, in solidarity. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Just quote me. Sight <laughs> <laughs> black women. <laughs> and I think that that's a very important way of showing the way in which your reimagining technology is fighting to level the playing field globally, but to also to recognize the skill and the power and the future of this continent in the hands of African women solving the problems on the continent that can literally transform their worlds, therefore our worlds, therefore economies and therefore entire nations and, and, and continents. I think that's really, really exciting. But I want to ask you a more personal question, and that is, what does technology mean to you? What excites you about it and what keeps you going when you're talking to white men who fund white men? <laughs> <laughs> well, he- here's why I got into technology in the 
very first. If I go back to sort of my, you know, as younger, I kind of played with computers. When I go back to the minute I decided to go do a degree in computer science, it was that moment where I said to myself, when I was sitting in a programming class or something like that, where I said, the computer is dumb, I am smart, and I can make it do what I want it to do. And I think that's, I always imagined myself as a creative, but didn't have, I'm not, like, didn't have artistry skills. I was good at science and math. But I always thought of myself as creative, and the computer and the technology gave me the sense that I could be creative, Without where it's like ones and zeros, I could still have my math and my engineering and still be creative, which is why you know I ended up sort of on the path for com- a computer science degree, I did a master's in distributed systems and building a tech company. I think for me, tech has always been a means to an end. I love that I studied this thing that I could always use to solve problems. And so get really excited about my ability to, even now, like in, with in tech entrepreneurship, you could reimagine business models, right? Business models that could not exist before exist now because of different technologies that we had. The ability to access and do things and test things out have been magnified tenfold this is the thing i absolutely love about it and then i got in and realized there are so many structural problems and so for me part of it is the like just innate love of being able to use technology to solve a problem and then the need to be able to put more people like me who look like me who talk like me who act you know who are like me out there doing exactly the same thing I'm trying to do, which is solve Africa's problems in a very different reimagined way with this tool, which is technology. So that's that's what keeps me going when I'm getting asked ridiculous questions in these meetings. <laughs> <laughs> My final question. Talk about how technology in Africa is a visionary tool, specifically in the hands of African women. See, here's the thing. African women have been solving the structural problems in our communities in, in many ways, just instinctively, right? You pull the numbers and yes, there are more women entrepreneurs this side of the Atlantic than anywhere else. We've been trying to solve problems around poverty, health concerns in, in our communities for ages. All we're doing is giving them a tool that accelerates that better, right? Which is why when we keep telling, when we're, you know, there's all the arguments about, no, but why are we trying to teach girls to code? You know, why do we need that? We say, listen, they're going to go solve problems anyway. We're just giving them a tool that makes it easier for them to go out there and solve those problems. And that's specifically, that's, that's what it is. And I think that an African woman without even the advantages, right, is doing amazing things. I mean, how much more could she do with this tool that enables her to reimagine how life could be, reimagine communication, reimagine access to finance, reimagine health? The possibilities are endless. Ethel Kofi, is she the Beyonce of technology in Africa? No, she's the Ethel of technology in Africa because she's her own unique woman reimagining technology in our Africa but running her world.
You're listening to Reimagining Africa on The Spin. It's our special series for Africa Day, the annual May celebration of the birth on May 25th, 1963, of what was then the organization of African unity and became the African Union. And now it's called Africa Day. Technology, not Silicon Valley, not the desert, not the white nerdy boys. No, right here on this continent, in Africa, reimagining this world of tech in conversation about innovation and recognizing that solitude always needs solidarity. We are on air in London on ABN Radio UK, across the US, in Iowa, Arizona, North Carolina, Massachusetts, South Carolina, New Jersey, and Mississippi. We are online on SoundCloud and iTunes. They treated African rappers like, no, you don't belong here. Now we blowing up and they like, something wrong here. Rocking SOVs and Papa Juve told me. From Women in Tech Africa and the CEO of a technology consulting firm, we go to London and Ghana to hear about a dynamic communications leader who is building an ecosystem between producers, investors, governments here in Ghana and across the diaspora. And her name is Akosia Annabelle. Akosia is founder of AB2020, a communications and events company that globally promotes and connects the Africa business and investment community. AB2020 curates events, leads multi-sector investment tours and business missions to Ghana. Check this out. Their digital newsletter goes out to 10,000 plus investors, business owners, government stakeholders and entrepreneurs globally. Akosia is creator of Tech in Ghana. That's a high-level industry platform. She was actually named as one of 2018's top 100 most influential black and minority ethnic leaders in the UK tech sector by the UK's heavyweight financial newspaper, the Financial Times. And she's also a co-leader of TLA Africa. That's Tech London Advocates Africa. It's a network of individuals and organizations who work together to develop stronger links between the tech ecosystems in London and key African markets. Akosia has worked with and consulted for the UK Ghana Chamber of Commerce, ITU Telecom World in South Korea on the Ghana Pavilion, the Global African Investment Summit that was in Westminster in London, the Business Council for Africa that was part of the BCA annual debate, and the High Commission of South Africa in London. That's to name just a very few. Welcome to Reimagining Africa, Akosia. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure as always to have a chat with you, Esther. I think what's really powerful about what you you're doing is reimagining the way tech in Ghana, really across Africa, is functioning when it comes to the way the investors and those producing products and solving problems actually get together. So start off by talking to me about Tech in Ghana, what you were trying to create, what you're trying to build. Tech in Ghana was launched in February 2017. Uh, essentially, we bring together like high level government stakeholders, the industry, entrepreneurs and students 
into one space to share knowledge, to showcase innovation. And we hold it twice a year, once in London and once in Accra. They both essentially do the same thing, but in two different ways. Because in Accra, it's a lot more of a local nuanced conversation. You obviously have to deep dive further into some of the aspects of like policy and, you know, education and all of that here. Whereas in London, it's more about like peer-to-peer networking and also like showcasing Ghana to a wider community. And then what kind of wraps around that is investors in the sense that those who now have an interest in the Ghana tech space have somewhere to go where you can kind of get a one stop of everything so you can get an understanding of the market you can network with who you need to you can speak to like the policy guys but then also obviously find some of the best tech companies in the country so the idea really was to give tech in Ghana like a space in the global conversation about Africa tech just to rewind a little bit AB2020 we wrote about a lot of sort of that was happening in the Africa tech space as media partners to other people's Africa technology platforms. And in those platforms, I could see that Ghana was sort of being mentioned as like the lovely country that was sort of up and coming back then, but nobody really had information about it. So that's where I kind of sparked the idea to to actually create that platform and just do that kind of one industry, one country focus. What's powerful about what you do is that you maximise your communications background mm. and bring it to reimagining the world of tech. Even you saying that you do tech in Ghana twice a year, once in London and once in Accra, and recognising the nuanced difference that each market requires. Yeah. So that you're really tailoring and catering to a market as opposed to this kind of term that I think often is where Silicon Valley is accused of treating Africa, the kind of parachute investing. You just parachute in whatever's Mm. worked elsewhere and somehow expect it to morph and metamorphosize and create something magical. Talk about the importance for you of learning about the needs of the market Mm. and then creating content to Mm. actually address that. It's layered on top of a genuine need. Taking Ghana is not something that I just felt like doing one day, right? So me going from being a journalist in the UK, running a PR company in the UK, having a moment where I lost my mother, decided to change my focus, focus on Africa, shifting my skills to an African market more, and then having this more focus on Ghana, it started out as just running the newsletter that you mentioned, right? And in running that newsletter, the communication skills for me at that time was really just about saying, what you're doing is brilliant. I want to write about it and I'm going to share this with a community of people who read my newsletter. But prior to getting to that point, I had to build a community of people who cared about the newsletter, thought it was credible, knew it was professional. So my communication skills started from there by saying, okay, I'm going to create this product, brand it, and I'm going to use this platform as a way to tell stories about entrepreneurs and investors in Africa. That was where it started. But then through those stories, through listening, through observing, I then learned that there was a gap. Right. So it was, like I said earlier, through seeing the other Africa tech platforms, talking more about Nigeria and Kenya and all of that. That's where I got the spark to say, actually, what you need 
these kind of entrepreneurs is what I'm seeing the other platforms have. And it came out because of that. So then coming from it from that angle, I'm not just doing it for the sake of it. I'm doing it with what you've told me in mind. Okay, you've told me that the industry needs to come together more. You've told me that there is a gap between what government are doing and what's happening on the ground. There is a lack of capital in the market. So my communication skills in this sense is like, well, I know this person who might be able to actually support that conversation or have you thought of speaking to x person and i always say it's like a jigsaw puzzle right this tech well well anything in life i think is you can't do anything on your own we can't all be techies we can't all be like radio presenters we can't all be communications people but we do all have a part to play to complement one another and i noticed at that point that i could use my communication skills in a way that could benefit the tech community like tech is everything right now right and so to me it was like it's important that this particular market in Ghana is supported. I'm going to bring my version of my tech skills into the market. And my thing was being able to identify the industry gaps to build relationships and to bring those relationships together. Like that, those are really the reasons why I started tech in Ghana. So when I do it from that context, then deciding to do it in London, deciding to do it in Accra was more about, because it launched in London, ironically. It launched in London because in London was where I was based originally when I started AB 2020 and where I saw the conversation about Africa tech like taking place from a point of view that wasn't necessarily authentically African. And I say that because you have, you know, we were having panels, discussions about people that were just on the Africa desk in London, not necessarily people that were on the ground, on the continent, right? Mm. So my thing was, what if we could have an authentic conversation about technology in Ghana from a Ghanaian perspective? So that was my thing, really. And I think that's why I think the platform was respected so quickly is because if the speakers were Ghanaians, they flew from Ghana to London to have the conversation. It wasn't anything less genuine than that. And I think from that point, it kind of just grew because I wasn't going to have one in Accra then. It wasn't until the tech community from Ghana came to London, the mix of corporate and government and the startup sector came together. I didn't know it was the first time even they were meeting. Wow. And they were the ones saying it was the to first me, time? it was the first time some of them were meeting. And they were like, we need this in Ghana. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then that's how I decided to do it in Accra. It was in the same year that I decided to do it in Accra. They were like, bring this to Ghana. We're not doing it in Ghana. And then lo and behold, by November, that was in February, by November, I decided to do it in Accra. And then doing it in Accra, the conversation became a lot more local. Whereas prior, it was more about, this is what's happening in Ghana to the global community. This is if you want to come in. This is how we want to go out. This is what we want to share. It was a lot more of a global conversation. In Ghana, it was a lot more about, we tried to get hold of you how long ago and you haven't been responding by email. It was a bit of that. But then also, it was much more about understanding each other. And so it's, it was creating a safe space for government to say, well, this is what we're doing. Fair enough, we don't necessarily know exactly whether or not we're doing it right and then the entrepreneurs to say this is really frustrating we've been building this uh, for how long on our own and in some cases there was a lot of like collaboration that came off of the back of that so it comes about through the genuine need of the market it's not from my head right. it's from me being able to say look this is where I think I can help build the conversation and I think my skill in communications is is relationship building 
So there's a trust, right? So if you've got a trust with people across the spectrum or across the value chain, then when you say, come, come to my house, Esther, you come to my house, right? Mm. You come to my house, Ethel. You come to my house, Jack. You come to my house, Kwaku. Like, and everybody trusts me to come. And not to say that everyone's coming because of me, but, you know, you, it's because we've built other kind of conversations, other kinds of relationships through AB2020, whether it's through the newsletter, whether it's through the business missions, you know that I'm here and I'm down for that, <laughs> for building the ecosystem. So I think there was a bit of that as well. And then it just kind of organically has grown since then. You say that you're building an ecosystem, which I think is really important language because the idea of recognising that, you know, Africa is a continent with 54 nations and there are all kinds of both similar and different needs because of the millions and millions and millions of people that live on this continent and on this space. And I think that there's been this notion of resolving the issues of a continent and not recognizing how locality matters, Mm -hmm. that the nuance of the local matters. Even if you're going to try and bring things more together, you have to be able to understand that in order to lift it up and take it to the next stage. And that's what I, as I listen to you, Mm -hmm. that's what I hear you doing. So there's a power and a framework and a clarity in what you're building. Talk a bit about some of the frustrations that you run into and how they impede what might be a faster progress in terms of building this ecosystem? One of my challenges when I came here was actually understanding the industry, right? Because I'm not a techie. Like, I really had to genuinely understand how does mobile money work and what is fintech and how does agritech work and all of these different sectors I had to learn myself. And one of the things when I first came that sort of you hear through the grapevine, you're like, oh, who is she? Like, where does she come from? Like, it's, very few people know my background, right? right? And that I'd come from a world of media from a very young age, that I'd ran a PR company for t- near on 10 years in London, that I'd done numerous events prior. When I came here, no one knew that. It was just this girl coming into an industry. That this small girl, about. the way they say Kinda. it again. Like, Who's this small girl? And, and, and the thing is, no one's <laughs> said it, but you can feel it. Right. Right, you right. can feel it. And then... You know, I also partnered with like the Ministry of Communications and I had to understand, you know, how that worked in terms of working with a a government agency, completely green to it. I was like, hey, this is great, which, you know, in some ways it really was. But there are certain protocols that go with that. So whereas I just kind of wanted to skip along and make this happen and, you know, really and truly get this kind of idea off the ground and get it moving, there are so many elements that actually you realise you come and step on without knowing that you then have to, to deal with. So that, that can be a little bit frustrating, but I'd say, I'd say more challenging or they just make the whole thing a little bit more long-winded than it needs to be. And I think I had to sort of almost prove myself to the market. What preceded Tech and Ghana was the AB2020 newsletter, right? So, and I think that saved me in a sense that I'd already had this platform that was genuinely for free just promoting what people were doing and that kind of worked in my benefit. The logistics of running an event, it's like a love and hate because there's part of it where you're like, 
oh my goodness, why is everything taking forever or why is everything so last minute? And then on the other hand, it's like, oh my God, people will stay up overnight to print your brochure if they have to or if you really need to get something like tomorrow, you will get it like by hook or by crook. So you take the rough with the smooth, really. Because if anywhere in the world that you go, you have them. And I think that's the thing about Africa. I really want to debunk that myth a little bit of like you come to Ghana and it's like, oh, you have to be ready, like put your armour on. Yeah, it's going to be tough you know and yeah it is but it's like so is anything so is everywhere absolutely so I was growing up in London certain times let's not always kind of have to give Africa that bad deal because to be fair I see more positives than negatives personally I think it's about perspective dear Africa it's just me your son pray this letter finds you better hope you're doing fine I can't believe the 10 years have gone by since I last packed my bags got a cabin sent by only imagine the feeling watching your kids go must have been heartbreaking where did the years go but you'd be proud to know i never stopped repping you every track every show every last interview plus i hated how they obtained your image in the news all the stereotypical narratives describing you if they ever met you i bet you was undisputable the way you shine so black so beautiful you're listening to The Spin. It is our Reimagining Africa series. And this hour, we're reimagining technology with our guest, Akosia Anobil, founder of AB2020, creator of Tech in Ghana, enabling her words, an ecosystem that really brings together these disparate elements of technology world from the grassroots to the government to the corporate sector to the investors in the diaspora and right here on the continent in order to enable tech to serve the people that it should serve to solve problems and for products to reach the people that it needs to reach. So you talked a bit about the choice to move from London to Ghana and the death of your mother. I'm so sorry to hear about Mm, that. Thank you. Talk a bit about the transition because I think sometimes death is like a propeller. Mm. It can make you literally reimagine your own world and explore things that you may not otherwise have thought of doing. I actually Mm. think that part of what death is sometimes for the living, to change your direction, to look at your world with a fresh lens, Mm -hmm. to explore things you might not explore. So talk about the decision to move to Ghana, because you're born in London, your family is Ghanaian. Talk about the decision to move. From the age of like 14, I was in the media industry writing for my local paper, and literally my life in journalism and media and communications didn't stop from that moment onwards going into national newspapers going into commercial radio a bit of television etc all behind the scenes mainly and I got to this point in my early 30s where I was like thriving really really great at what I did I had a fantastic network and I had never really like stopped to even look at my achievements I'd never really thought about even the transition from traditional media into digital media and then I'd been to Ghana once or twice but like once with Jay-Z believe it or not and Beyonce (laughs) as you do in 2005 I think it was and then I'd come to celebrate Ghana at 50 but I was coming on a press trip and even then I hadn't really I was like oh Ghana yeah 
bumped into, you know, I had to go and visit a couple of uncles and stuff. But other than that, I didn't really feel anything. Then got to my sort of early 30s, it was 2012. And yeah, my mum literally died suddenly, like having a meal with my brother, went to take a nap, didn't wake up, right? It was just that kind of sudden. Absolute shock to my system. Everything just completely crashed for me at that point internally. And it was the first time that I think I'd ever considered like what you might what am I doing with life when death happens it made me really think about what are we what on earth are we doing here like if my mom could just disappear just like that what and feel that pain it opens up a part of you that's like no 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 wait 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 everything just looks black and white what what are we doing here right I can't be just sitting down writing about Beyonce and Jay-Z for the rest of my life like there's a mission that needs to come with all of this skill and this opportunity that I've been given so it sort of stemmed from that I think wanting to come back to Ghana was really part of my mourning process because my mum was born here obviously my dad was born here as well I was like aching for information because I just was missing her so much and you know learned so much I knew my granddad was in PR and journalism here you know he was a very instrumental back in the 60s as a PR in, in the Cocoa Board and also working for Daily Graphic and all various things like that. So that link there was starting to bring me closer because he's like my mum's dad. What was your granddad's name? His name was Nana Fred Sapong. Nana Fred Sapong. Yes, he was. Name in the PR yeah, journalism world of the yeah. 1960s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really great guy. And so at that point, I started to get this feeling of I don't want to stay here. Like I feel like I've reached my peak. Like I'd, I'd looked around and seen what I'd achieved and it just wasn't, London wasn't doing much for me anymore. And then I just started, you know, praying on it and I started attending a lot of events in London that were Africa related. So I spent about 18 months just literally like floating around, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, looking at the opportunities in Ghana. And then originally I thought I was going to maybe come and you know, go, go into radio or, you know, go and write for a newspaper or something. And I quickly thought, that's not going to happen. And then AB2020 came about as almost like, literally like an epiphany. It was just like, I've got to create something. I've got to create something. And, and you know, God's so good. Like and when, when you really are in that spiritual realm, ideas come to you, right? Your purpose will drop upon your lap when you're open to it. That's what my mum's death did for me. Like I was just surrendering literally to the universe. And I got to that point because I was, I was mourning, but I got to that point because I remember reading about people that were mourning death and how did people get over death. And I remember reading a specific text that said, you know, behind every cloud, there is a silver lining in death. It forced me to write down what are the positives of this death that you have having to deal with. And I was like, what? Who does that? How can you write down what's positive about this? How can it be? And then it was like, even down to the time that I used to spend with my mum, what am I going to do with that time? Mm. Like I've now got this window of time. What am I going to do with it? This feeling of no longer wanting to do what I've always done. What are you, what are you going to do with that feeling? What are the possibilities? What's ahead of you? And I'm such an optimist like that. So I had to really draw on that part of my personality. And that's what brought me to this direction. I started coming to Ghana more regularly. Instead of coming for a week here and a week there, I started coming for a month, for a month here and a month there. Then it went to two months, three months. I spend more time in Accra than I do in London. And I think that's a really healthy way of approaching it because I needed to be in London initially to figure out what I was doing, build on this sort of brand and really have an understanding of how I was going to enter the market, etc. And then it got to a point where you can only do this from a distance for so long. So then I had to come 
and then you have to be here and then you start doing it the opposite way around, right? So depending on what it is that you want to do, then your transition should sort of suit that rather than it being like, I'm going to get up, go to Ghana and then I'm going to do what I want to do. There's no real rule around it. So I, that's what worked for me and it was really an organic transition. You know, we're talking in 2019, it's the year of return. It's this anniversary of when Africans became enslaved and they ended up in different parts of the world. And of course, Britain is one of the places that had a long and deep enslavement history. And although they like to celebrate William Wilberforce and the abolition of enslavement, they're slower to acknowledge that there was any kind of slavery in the first place mm. at all. And so when it comes to London and Ghana and this history of colonialism and its legacy and the different ways it manifests, I think what is exciting and powerful with our Reimagining Africa series is listening to and hearing from women who combine cultures for you, Ghana and British, and apply a developed skill set to a specific need to literally create something Mm. that serves community, that serves economy, that serves entrepreneurship, and that serves the problem solving. Mm. You know what I mean? It's kind of one of the things that we're called to do. I think Mm. it's also the idea of reimagining service by thinking about the business that you're going to build with the skills that Mm. you have. So then as you look out into the landscape and what you're creating, what's your vision and your wish for where Tech in Ghana goes, for where AB 2020 goes? I'm just going to wave the wand. It's not going to be a magic wand. It's going to be an African wand. (laughs) We're going to wage the African wand and say, where do you see this ecosystem that you are contributing to the development of? Where do you see that moving and growing and what's your vision and wish for it? I just see it morphing into the world, like into the global narrative. Like recognize who you are. None of it is a mistake. Me being a Ghanaian, because you can't take that away, regardless of where I grew up on, no matter how cockney I am, right? I am a Ghanaian. I'm an African. It's not a mistake that we happen to be born there and then now we're back here or that you had the experience that you've had in America and like to be able to do this because your creative brain is based on all of the elements of who you are. That's what I believe I am too. Then all of us out there are in a similar position. Like I want just everybody to recognise who they are. The type of technologies that are being built in Africa, there's nowhere in the world they're doing that. But you're never going to hear that or see that, right? That acknowledgement has got to come from us. We can't wait for somebody else to tell us that. I want us to take ownership of who we are. Like, and don't be scared of it. Like, just be courageous in who we are. Like, and embrace it and then just be. Just move on up toward your destination. Though you may find from time to time complication. the power, not the possibility, but the reality, the enabling, the, I would still say developing 
and ecosystem because it wasn't there until you started to bring what you brought mm. together. So like you take can take ownership of that part as well. And what does it mean to take ownership of ourselves, to bring the entirety of your creativity, your innovation, your dynamism, your uniqueness to a table mm. and help resolve the issues so that our lives are better? Our lives are what they are supposed to be. Well, we certainly were reimagining technology with Akosia Annabelle, founder of AB2020 and the creator of Tech in Ghana. Akosia Annabelle, taking ownership of who we are in Africa. We heard. I think that's a tweetable or at least a hashtag. Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Akosia. You are welcome. You are welcome. It's been a pleasure. That's your hour. Thank you to Ethel Coffey. Thank you, Ethel. Thank you. And thank you to Akosia Annabil. The Spin is brought to you by our global team, our sound editor, David McKeever, a.k.a. McKeever Magic, and Loretta Rucker of the AAPRC. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is sexy. I'm your host, Esther This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.